Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not weak. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. Hey yo, young forever, defending our rights, down with the black man. Do you think ABC's like we don't listen to this program? Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital podcast for audio and news. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And it's good morning to everybody on this wonderful Saturday morning. Um, I hope that everybody's had a wonderful week. Have we had a pretty amazing week, haven't we? Um, <clears throat> with our federal government, that just seems to get worse and worse and worse. However, we're not going to talk about them in this program. <laughs> We've got much better things lined up to talk about, haven't we, Lali? Good morning, Len, and good morning, listeners. Yes, uh, we've got lots of things coming up. Um, first up, we are discussing Vandana Shiva, the... Um, famous Vandana Shiva. Um, she made a contribution in uh, Sydney uh, late last month and we were recording of that and we'll discuss it in, in, um, in pieces. And then, of course, we've got the usual program, uh, bits that's the rank and file radio and we've got um, Uncle Kevin later on. Follow that, following that, we've got um, Humphrey McQueen. Wow. Really exciting program. Full and uh, Humphrey's going to update us, isn't he, from last time? Which it's like a serial with Humphrey these days. Yes, he loves that. A, theor- a theoretical serial, folks. He's very much like you. He's a historian. He just knows it all, and he just you know offers oh. it up in a plate, and it's it's fun to listen to him. Okay, um, so shall shall I introduce Vandana Shiva, and then we can move on to the first bit of her contribution. I think that would be terrific, Lali. Okay. Now, Vandana Shiva is a Indian physicist, and many uh, people out there would know her. She's a noted environmentalist. She's an eco-feminist and human rights activist. Shiva's work highlights the fundamental connections between human rights and the protection of the environment. Governments worldwide seek her counsel on sustainable development as she offers solutions to critical problems posed by globalization and climate change in poverty-stricken nations. She has argued for the wisdom of many traditional practices that draws up India's Vedic heritage. She's a member of the scientific committee of what they call Foundation I. Ideas. I think it's Spanish. I can't say it properly. Apologies uh, for all those people who know Spanish. It's, um, that organization is Spain's Socialist Party's think tank. She's also a member of the International Organization for a Participatory Society. Her latest book, Soil, Not Oil, identifies the ecological, sound, and socially just ways to protect a fragile planet. She's won multiple, a multiple number of awards, and um, her livelihood award was um, offered to her. It's the alternative to Nobel Prize. Um, she won that a few years ago. 
and she sits on the Time and Forbes list of world's most important activists is, and is still creating waves. So let's um, listen to the first bit of a contribution. Because we are usually not conscious that the planet is always on our plate. We have a beautiful ancient Upanishad that says everything is food. Everything is something else's food. And in the food that comes to our plate are in space and in time all the relationships that ever were that made it. The relationships in the soil of geological processes that gave the minerals. Of all the organisms, the earthworm, which Darwin said would be the most significant species when human history would be written in terms of what it contributes. He wrote a little booklet called The Mold, the Mycorrhizae. And for this beautiful continent, I would add the Aboriginal people. Every morsel you eat is a gift from them. The last time I was in Sydney, I was here for the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And they gifted me a book which I read on the way back. It's a very fat book. And the title of the book is The Largest Estate on Earth. And it's basically showing that this continent was managed as a garden, not as a bush. So I think it would be good for all Australians to start talking about their continent as a garden. Because bush is something you use so frequently, isn't it? And in every morsel we eat is all of evolution, biological and cultural. In it are the diversity of species. And the further diversification by the farmers who today are called intellectually challenged, but have given us the 99.9% breeding that supports our food system. Um, Indian farmers gave us 200,000 varieties of rice. In Navdanias, we've rescued and saved about 3,000. Most of the foods humans have eaten, and humans have eaten more than 8,500 species, most of them were first driven out by the 12 commodities that were traded globally. And now that our seeds are genetically engineered, and the only reason seeds are genetically engineered is to collect a royalty from every acre. That's the only objective. Everything else is good spin. Now, because there are only four crops that they've been able to commercialize with genetic engineered traits, and only two traits after all these years, only two sad traits. Bt toxin, so that the plant becomes its own pesticide factory, and herbicide tolerant, the Roundup Ready crops. So you have four crops, corn, soya, canola, cotton, with two traits. And here are farmers who have, here's, here's, the, here's nature first, who's given us all the tremendous species. And then there are farmers who took grasses, the teosinte, gave us the corn and the diversity. Although Raisa Sativa, the parent of Indian rices, no two varieties are the same. No variety has only one trait. So that's an interesting contribution in terms of I love the way she says, the planet on, planet on your plate. 
I love the way she, I love her holistic attitude that, and I find every time I hear her so incredibly refreshing when she, she's able to link, well in this case, I mean she links, you know, the whole of evolution um, to what you're eating at any given moment and she sees within that, um, you know, the specifics of the work that farmers over the generation have done and she includes in that um, Australian Aborigines, which is a wonderful thing to hear. And I love the way she describes it. They manage it as a garden, mm. and we call it bush. Mm. It, it's, it's a huge um, difference in how we manage the whole thing, isn't it? And, and it, the fact that she also brings in another aspect, which is all the relationships that are attached to that plate of food in front of us, mm. the, 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 the producers, the people who um, dig the land, plant the crops, harvest the crops, put it together, and, and then eventually give the shops, and then from them to our plate. All that relationships, which is all the, the process of production, yeah, it's and, amazing. And also that over the generations, sort of throughout evolution, um, changes have been happening and, you know, humans have been intervening in nature in order to improve crops. Mm. And, and, and the point that, you know, that what's happening actually now is that um, developments are taking place which are counter to production. They're the opposite to production. They're actually about creating seeds for, as she says, absolutely no reason at all except the commercial reason of that somebody can patent them and own them. Mm. She's amazing. That it, it's her, her way of putting it together and she's actually doing things on the ground as well. She presents it beautifully and she works on the ground yeah. with, with everyday people, women on, in farms, um, men in farms. And in fact, she worked with the government Bhutan to produce organic food for the whole nation. And yes. Bhutan today is, I think, completely organic. Yes, and she's been very, very active in the whole question of dam damming in, yes. in, in India, hasn't she? And so the preservation of water, I think that's when I first heard her talking was when she was involved in those campaigns. Mm. Um, but what I never knew until I heard your introduction this morning, Lali, was that she was a physicist. Yes, she's a quantum and physicist. I actually find the fact that she's a physicist absolutely fascinating because I'd sort of always attributed the holistic view that she has to her being Indian and, <laughs> and you know, the, and the sort of, you know, the, the Hindi and Buddhist sort of attitudes to holism, yes. which, you know, I'm sure is a part of her... Um, of course, you know, of of how she sees the world, but uh, but but this is adds a whole lot when you go ah she's a physicist as well. So yes, it's very interesting. Intriguing. It's the first time I've seen a physicist working with agricultural um, things, and it's it's amazing the the knowledge she brings with her by using that that physicist mind. Well, physics is actually at the basis of absolutely everything, True. and so True. and so I think that's why you know she. Her bringing of physics into this question of um, looking at the evolution of plants hmm. is what, which is what she's talking about today. Um, you know, gives a fascinating aspect, and also there is obviously, you know, we're talking about her philosophical um, influences, but there's clearly a very strong political motivation and influence as well in her. Absolutely, she's very she's she's very dedicated to um, seeing seeing the world in terms of um, it, it being able to service all of its people equally, isn't she? All right, so we shall move on to, do, to play the second part of yes, the interview. Please. And from the beginning, 1987 onwards, not only have we personally not accepted patenting of seed and patenting of life, we've made sure that in India our laws don't recognise it. 
For those of you who work with Steve Marsh, I would say add the intellectual property component to that issue. I don't think it's enough to say he's an organic farmer who lost his organic status. The more serious issue is canola, which was never invented by Monsanto, all they did was put a toxic gene into it to express toxic traits. Roundup resistance in particular, but also antibiotic resistance markers and viral promoters, that if at all they've done something new, it's that bundle of toxic genetic traits. And in any environmental issue, the principle is the polluter must pay. What Monsanto's done with Percy Smyzer in Canada and Steve Marsh here is saying the polluter gets paid. And they've said in Percy's case, the way we'll take over given the resistance against GMOs, is through contamination. So there are two issues related to this. One, it's because they've defined this as the intellectual property. The seed isn't. The next generation of seed isn't. But those toxics are theirs. They've added those. They didn't create life. Life is not a manufacture. But adding toxics is a human act. And I won't go into the details of Bauman versus Monsanto, where a farmer who bought grain from an elevator and planted it, he was sued by Monsanto. And the Supreme Court of the U.S. upheld the Monsanto case saying, any reproduction of a seed in a farmer's field that is patented is the theft of a self-replicating machine. It's a machine, the seed. Now there's also in international law, and I was appointed by the U.N. to be an expert in framing the biosafety laws globally under the Convention on Biological Diversity, that convention uh, of biodiversity had Article 19.3, under which we got the biosafety protocol. There is an additional protocol on liability. We haven't done our homework. We haven't taken this international law on liability of damage and harm to biodiversity and converted it into movements, because no law comes without movement building. So rather than Steve fighting a defensive fight, I think in Australia, in India, in the United States, everywhere, we really should give a call. No patents on seed. Monsanto, you did not invent the seed. You anyway are not a person, even though you pretend to be. You don't have a mind. Therefore, you can't have intellectual property in products of the mind. I think it's a fantastic thing, no patents on anything. And... Um, and, and also, I really like the twist, you know, let's not just have a defensive, let's not just be defensive here, hmm. but let's turn it into an offensive and uh, and stop this patenting of seed, which is, um, I think, a fantastic call. And also, it's it's really interesting because there is a bit of a groundswell about that, isn't there? Yes, there, there is. is. You know, like everywhere you go these days, uh, it's it's a bit... It's it's a bit greening, isn't it? Like the like everywhere you go, there's green. Now pretty much everywhere you go, there are heirloom, um, you know, heirloom seeds yes. and heirloom vegetables. And even yes. I notice in you know vegetables being sold at markets and things are sometimes now advertised as being heirloom, which is great because you know if they are heirloom, then they do contain, um, one assumes, the sorts of things that um, that Vandana was talking about in her first clip in the first clip that we played which is the holistic uh build up of everything that's ever happened to the soil throughout evolution mm. i i love the way she explains the whole thing like the 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 you know it, 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 it the fact that she calls the seed a machine not she but the courts call it a machine and you mm. you you buy 
um, using this seed or, or taking this seed, you are replicating a machine. That's what that's how she puts it, mm. and therefore you are liable. It's interesting, and then she 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 says it's um, corporation. You're not a person. You don't have a mind. You can't create. You can't create property. the seed. But but well, you can't create the seed. You didn't create no, the seed. No. All you did is add a little something to the seed. But the fact of the matter is that you uh, and then you you claim intellectual property. And then that, yes, that's your point, isn't it? You know, you can't it's, have intellectual. A person has an intellect. A company does not right. have an intellect. That's right. And a company can therefore not. Ex- but except that international law allows for companies to have. Um, to have, uh, you know, a uh, personality, in, as such. a personality, as such, yeah. an intellectual, um, intellectual property, and as I understand, in the trade agreements that are being negotiated currently, they're also looking at giving corporations the status of a person in terms of, if, you know, if they've been wronged in any way, then they can sue as if they were a person who'd been they were injured in, in some way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, the parallels in, in the industrial arena is very clear. Yeah, that's a history to it. It's very clear, and and, and whilst so we're taking away the rights of workers. In all sorts of ways, including right. to have health and safety conditions at work, including the ability to sue if if they don't have proper health and safety mm. conditions. But we're giving those to corporations. That's right. It's appalling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But that's the bourgeois law for you, I suppose. Let's um, get on to the third clip. All the food we eat embodies in it the hydrological cycle, the water footprint. There's so much discussion now on the virtual trade in water, with the export of water and the import of drought in arid areas. And the air. I mean, the air is what connects us. Breath, pranayam, prana, life. That is what breath is. And for those who've been through pranayam and yoga training, I don't know if you've been through the fact that you say, so hum, hum, yeah? So you are, therefore I am. If you weren't there, I wouldn't be. That's the world of interconnectedness. That's the world of non-separability. And in a world of balance and ecological relationship, we put out carbon dioxide, the trees and all the plants give us oxygen and the cycle goes on. But when you move to a fossil fuel base in agriculture, we can start pouring more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere then the biosphere can absorb, which is why we get climate change. Nitrogen circulates. You take fossil fuels, fire them at 400 degrees centigrade, turn it into synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, and apply it on farms. That gives you nitrogen oxide 300 times more lethal in climate instability than carbon dioxide. So 40% of climate instability I don't call it climate change because climate change makes you believe it's all going to move like this. No, it moves like that. You don't know when it's going to be cold and the average temperatures are increasing. But the extreme events is what destroys agriculture. The extreme flood, the extreme drought, the extreme cyclone, and the more frequent occurrences. So in my book, Soil Not Oil, I worked out on the basis of IPCC data that 40% of all greenhouse gases contributing to climate change are coming from industrial globalized farming. And with regenerative farming, we really have in our hands a system that could take all that additional 
carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and turn it into soil fertility. But for that, we'd have to do the work on the principle of the law of return, of giving back, which can only come from the recognition that we received, that the food we eat is the distillation of all the nutrition recycling, geological time, yesterday, today, and I would add the potential for tomorrow. Because the way we are harming the future is first by destroying the planet's capacity to support us. If you look at biodiversity, the United Nations Plant Genetic Resources Conference has said 75% gone because of industrial monocultures. 75% water is abused and polluted in industrial agriculture. 75% of water is used by industrial monoculture. And here we are talking about we are running short of water. The next biggest battlefront is around water. Yeah. And I, I also think, you know, it's really interesting to hear the way that she talks about um, agriculture and the, and, and the contribution that, current practices of agriculture are having towards climate change, or yes. as she likes to call it climate... What does she say? What is it that she likes to call it? Climate... <clears throat> not climate change, but... Um, I thought she said climate change. No, she said, she said she doesn't like to call it change because it seems like change is just something that will happen and then settle... In travel in one direction. Instead of it, yes. she, wants to, she, she used a word which insinuates that sort of crisis... Con- yes. Continual crises. I can't remember the word, actually. Um, climate instability, actually, yeah, that's she the calls word. it. That's yeah, that's Climate instability. Yeah. It's terrific. But but the, the whole thing about the ag- agriculture being so significant is, is really good for her to remind us because, really, we um, participate daily in this whole matter of agriculture in terms of the food that we buy to put on our own plates. And we do have some choice over, you know, what we choose to buy and uh, and and investigating how it um, how how it's manufactured and uh, you know so on and there's a lot of focus when we talk about climate change climate instability on coal yes uh, and you, you we tend to just think about you know the dangers mm. of fossil fuels well of course that's not separate from what she's talking about because it is the use of fossil fuels that is that influences and and is part of the whole industrialization of yep, agriculture. That's true. But at the same time, I think it's very, very significant that we think about the contribution that current methods of agriculture are making. So I, uh, it's very fantastically refreshing to hear her talking about this. And in particular nitrogen. Yes. Yes. Okay, let's go on to the last bit, which is a fairly short one. And then we have Rankin Paul after that. The women asked us to bring the mustard oil back, and I did a mustard satyagraha. And why does soy oil become cheap? Because the U.S. government is putting more than $200 subsidy behind every town, and the Indian government's putting $300 to make a very costly product cheap. And behind every aspect of cheap food is our own tax money being used against us. And that's why we do need a movement, an economic democracy movement, on how our taxes are spent. And we need to move from monocultures of the mind and monocultures in our diets and monocultures in our fields to the biodiversity of species and ecosystems, the biodiversity of knowledges from our grandmothers and ancestors to our children, the knowledge of the cow as much as the braid of grass because there's intelligence there. We need a biodiversity of ecosystems with the local, as Joel said, the home at the center. Oikos is home. Oikonomia is what Aristotle said, the art of living. 
and he had another name for what Monsanto is engaged in. He called it crematistics, the art of money-making. Very different. We need a democracy, the political level, again beginning from the local. And these together create living economies, living democracies, living cultures. Either we will reclaim agriculture as a culture of the land, or we will be pushed to extinction by an agriculture that is no more agriculture, but is an extension of war against the planet and our body. What her, She's what not a mincing way. words, is oh. she? <laughs> not mincing words at I'm all. I'm dumbfounded. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's very profound stuff. Um, unless we take up this battle, unless we fight against this, then we basically won't have a planet left to That's feed right. us. And um, not to mention the way that, all of this influences, um, you know, is throwing throwing people into poverty all the time. People who used to have subsist farming used to have small farming and make a living from, you know, sending some of their crops away for um, sale, etc. All of these being wiped out and in the in favour of this massive industrialised agriculture. I like the way she brings everything together. Like yeah. she, she talked about politics. She brings it brings it in the interconnectedness is is what I see in her, as you say, holistic. I see in the interconnectedness connection between politics, physics, agriculture, war, and also mobilization. I mean, she talked about, um, mm. you know, the, the guy who had a canola problem in New South Wales. Mm. She said, no law can be made unless there is a mobilization behind it. Mm. You have to change law. And, and boy, do you need people mobilizing behind the changes we want. It's a pity that the Australian Labor Party didn't understand that. But anyway, that um, is another yes. subject. So... <laughs> But but I do think that um, I, I do think that it, the other side to that, and which that I really like about her is the way she talks about diversity as well. So we're talking about interconnectedness on the one hand, and on the other hand, what we're talking about is a necessity for diversity. That's right. And diversity at all levels: diversity not just in plants, but diversity of knowledge, diversity of cultures, diversity of thought, and yes. so on. And and I think that you know politically. Um, you know, she's been talking like this for long time, many decades yes, now. Yes. Um, but I think politically that more and more people are, and I include myself in the more and more people, are sort of becoming aware of the fact that this, these questions of interconnectedness and diversity are at the heart of any healthy political change that we might That's be right. able to look towards. And it's not just a, a, a single model. There are multiple models and, and people from different aspects of life thinking differently, actually aiming for the same thing. You want democracy that she mentioned. You know, we want people to participate in, the, in society as, as equals, which she talks about as well. Yes. And, and that's what I find really um, exciting in her speech. She, she inspires you to think more laterally rather than vertically as it is today. Yeah, she does. She inspires you to think more laterally and she also inspires you to take action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she also inspires you to um, have, an, have you know, to understand deeply what the basic causes of our problems are and to, and to target, um, you know, battles and, and, and campaigns and movements against the accurately. Yes, absolutely. Which I think, you know, is a fantastic place for us to finish this discussion because I think that where we might take up when we talk to Humphrey a bit later on is pretty much around there, same yes. place. Yes, and so it'll be good. The connection will be good. Okay, to some announcements. 
3CR Breakfast Radio meets the people. So come along to 3CR's Sustainable Breakfast Series, broadcast live from Friends of the Earth Food Co-op. Join us for Breakfast Tasties at Friends of the Earth Cafe, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood, or tune in to 3CR to hear what people are doing in the area of sustainability. From Monday, March 23rd to Friday, March 27th, starts at 7am and goes through till 8.30am. So if you're down on Smith Street any of the mornings, come down, watch a live show. Every show will have a musician and it's a fantastic initiative by 3CR and Friends of the Earth. Supported by Yarra Council. I'm Mauro Durante from Canzoniere Grecanico Salentino. This is 3CR 855 on your IM dial. Please subscribe. The community is important, the spirit of community is the most important thing, so subscribe. Okay, next um, section of our program is Rank and File. And this section is produced by Marcus Harrington, who is a member of the NUW, and he does this on a regular basis. He's a, a grassroots activist who enjoys doing this program. And he always does fabulous, fabulously interesting interviews and gets a different view, which we're talking about diversity. Marcus is your man. Yep, okay, here we go. And welcome back to another edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855 AM. And on today's uh, program, we're going to look at the uh, right to strike again, and particularly the right to strike around the issue of patent and industry-wide bargaining. Uh, and on the show again, I'm joined by Chris Y. Welcome to the program, Chris. And you're going to talk a bit about a movie launch that took place through the week. Yes, well, thanks very much. And um, yes, last year... Uh, in Canberra was a peace convergence. It was the bringing together of a number of uh, community peace groups all around Australia. And then uh, at the end, there was uh, an attempt uh, that was very successful to set a world record for the most protest actions in a single day against the war machine, the war machine, particularly those uh, companies in Canberra. And the film is called Waging Peace. Waging Peace. It's a new documentary. It's made by David Bradbury uh, and it gives a good illustration of the politics of the modern Australian peace movement, particularly as I went along as well and also uh, Marcus, uh, you were here. I was here. And, uh, of course, uh, one of the speakers at that Canberra Peace Convergence was the Iraqi war veteran, Vince Emmanuel, he spoke uh, very well, uh, also Senator Scott Ludlam and others. And at the end, the film concludes with a very powerful uh, march, a frontier wars march uh, on the Anzac Day when um, Aboriginal uh, leaders uh, say that uh, the battles between the British colonialists and the Aboriginal people, the frontier wars, that those wars are worthwhile recognising on Anzac Day, and it's quite uh, important. Of course, we are now in an era of continuous war. Uh, We have uh, another uh, bombings and war in Iraq. Uh, We have um, US uh, tensions against 
Russia, uh, and also uh, on my blog, for example, Chris White Online, uh, then uh, there's an argument that the uh, Marines in Australia, the Marines in Australia are part of a campaign by the US Pentagon to put pressure on China and to lead up to possible war on China. I should add, of course, that uh, with Malcolm Fraser passing away in his uh, recent years, he moved to the position that the US alliance is no longer useful. The Vietnam War was disastrous. The Iraq War was disastrous. Afghanistan War is disastrous. And we have to learn to say uh, no to the US and for Australia to become independent. And this uh, belief that campaigning for an independent and peaceful Australia is one of the uh, themes of this film, Waging Peace. Now, whether it's going to go onto TV, I'm not quite sure. Obviously, we have to lobby uh, for that. But uh, it is a very important uh, issue. And for rank-and-file unionists, it's important to have this question of peace keep fighting for peace and against war, and peace is union business. But uh, you will remember, uh, Marcus, it was quite a, an exhilarating and exciting day as we went from one uh, company to another, uh, these companies making millions of profits out of war, and to give an expose of uh, uh, the warmongering that goes on in Canberra. Oh, that's right, Chris, out of the 28, 28 companies and embassies we visited that day. Of course, the industrial military uh, complex was one of the, the issues uh, raised as we set about uh, breaking that world record for the amount of protests in one day. Uh, some of those companies were the notorious anti-union companies, uh, Lockheed Martin and uh, British-American aerospace, where there were protests uh, held. And, of course, on... That Friday Anzac Day, uh, when you mentioned the Frontier Wars march up to the War Memorial, and as you see on Anzac Drive in Canberra and right around the lake, is uh, the memorials of these uh, soldiers killed. Um, and yet, there's another memorial, a workers' memorial, but that memorial is uh, tucked way out of sight and out of mind almost. Yes, so again, I just recommend people to get a hold. Uh, I think it's coming out DVD, The Waging Peace, this documentary. Uh, particularly as the Abbott government proselytises and pushes uh, Anzac and current wars down people's throats. People are opposed to it, but it's a very good example of what can be done and what can be said and to uh, boost the uh, peace movement in Australia. OK, now we'll move on to the second uh, part of the show where we'll talk about another war, the class war, probably the only war worth fighting. Yes, well, I think that one of the real difficulties Australian unionists have in prosecuting and pushing uh, the working class agendas and getting better wages and conditions uh, is the uh, current industrial laws and fair work inherited from work choices is uh, a number of anti-strike features. And I just want to comment on one of the worst uh, anti-strike features uh, in our legislation at the moment. We have to really campaign against that is a prohibition on industry or pattern bargaining. Now, this means it's uh, almost one of the world's worst uh, labour law systems for uh, workers. Uh, Obviously, uh, in industries, it is normal and natural for national unions 
to uh, campaign, to put up across the board what they and the members consider uh, to be necessary for better wages and conditions on an industry level or pattern bargaining, meaning more than one employer, a number of employers, uh, but uh, with common claims for wages and conditions for more than two or more employers and you take strike action, then the employers get upset and use the fair work, so-called fair work, uh, to cut down on this. And this is uh, really absolutely uh, abominable for any normal uh, union movement. Uh, We normally used to both have campaigning at the enterprise level at the uh, industry uh, level and then also at the national level. And these days, with multinationals dominating the Australian economy, we need to have clear rights to strike also at the international level. And again, uh, the question of freedom, freedom of unionists to organise, to determine what level of bargaining, whether it's enterprise, uh, multi-employer, industry-wide agreements, these freedoms should be available to Australian unionists. Yet um, both the... uh, Starting with the Howard government, uh, then unfortunately also with the Rudd and the Gillard government, and now with the Abbott government, we have uh, the law is used against unions who uh, risk... Uh, heavy penalties and fines if they go for so-called unlawful industry strikes. It doesn't mean, of course, that uh, unions don't... um, uh, existing unions, some unions don't take uh, national demands and campaign nationally, but run the risk of when it's coordinated, uh, when these uh, industrial actions, which is often necessary... When these industrial actions go across the industry, then uh, they risk uh, severe fines if the employers want to take them on. So we're in a situation when there's one law for workers and unions and yet another set of laws for the bosses and the employers when uh, workers under an enterprise agreement cannot support another shed or factory workplace when they're going on strike, yet the bosses have the option where they can move work to one of their other uh, work sites where they can bring scabs in. So bosses can show solidarity according to the law, yet when workers want to show solidarity with other workers in another workplace under another enterprise agreement, we see the situation where it's declared unlawful. Yes, and of course, uh, throughout industries, it's very common for employers, powerful employers, to themselves engage in their industry bargaining against the unions. Um, so they want to constantly force down as low as possible wages and you know conditions, or at least to um, stop the normal arguments of individual union members to say comparative wage justice. That is, this particular employer in my industry, and I'm doing the same sort of work as playing these wages and conditions. We should be able to uh, take collective action together to uh, solve this issue rather than risking uh, the uh, penalty. So it is an extraordinary uh, issue. Um, The International Labour Organisation, for example, uh, condemned both the Howard government and the Rudd government uh, for for prohibiting 
these industry strikes. Uh, but again, the law hasn't changed. So we mentioned this not only so that uh, union delegates can themselves start to organise on a national basis, but also if and when a new Labor government comes into government, uh, then we can campaign to make sure that these uh, restrictions are withdrawn and that we're able to, if we want to, if we're free to, uh, take industry action and, as I said, also international action these days. And that's a trapping of the enterprise bargaining system which forces workers to only worry, to only have concern for their own work site and not the work site next door or the other, the other factory of the company they work for. Now, going back to in the year 2000, when the uh, workers' first team, a team of militants from the metals, trades, industries, uh, took the leadership of the Metal Workers' Union from 1996 onwards, they uh, implemented their campaign 2000, and that was an attempt to break away from the enterprise bargaining system and go revert to an industry-wide campaign, which they managed uh, quite successfully from 1998 until the year 2000, when the stronger work sites went two years on an expired enterprise agreement in order for the weaker sites uh, to catch up to gain those same wages and conditions uh, as the stronger sites. Their industrial strength gained momentum as every day, as every month went on. Uh, July 30 was the date they aimed uh, to, for the expiry of those 2,000 separate enterprise agreements to all expire on. So as that date came around, power was in the workers' hands because there was more and more sites heading towards their expiry date, which meant those sites could then take action so the power shifted then from the bosses to the workers and the bosses then put pressure on each other to sign off because there was close to 2,000 sites uh, ready to hit the grass. So this is a, has been done before, so that workers' first story in the uh, Metal Workers' Union should be um, an inspiration to us that we can revert to an industry-wide campaigning again. Yes, I think that's very important, of course, not just for the uh, in the metal uh, industries, but uh, in any occupation and in any uh, worksite, rather than being forced to go worksite by worksite or individual by individual, which is what the uh, right-wing companies really want. But rather than just doing that, delegates, union members uh, can get to know others in their uh, industry. Uh, there's no doubt about it with national unions being able to organise meetings across Australia. Once workers get together, oh, this is happening in Victoria, oh, same thing happening in New South Wales, Queensland, oh, right, and this is the reason why, that uh, workers can develop uh, their own rank-and-file organisation, but at the national level. And uh, I think this is something, it does happen in quite a number of unions, but in many other unions, unfortunately, uh, who are too nervous, union leaders are too nervous to do this, it's restricted very much to enterprise bargaining. You can still do a strike action for enterprise bargaining, but I think unless we start pushing for the right to strike on industry or pattern bargaining, then workers' interests will not be uh, looked after. So it's very important, I think, for... Uh, union people to uh, connect together, which we can do these days, uh, set up uh, organisation, put up arguments to union leaders that uh, we've got to move forward uh, collectively at the national level. And that's why it's important for the rank and file members of the unions to create their own networks within their unions of rank and file members. It seems something that uh, 
union officials are, uh, are too af- afraid to do to organise these meetings of rank and file members, maybe for the fear that the, the members will take their job. There is rank and file networks set up in, in various unions, uh, the public sector union in both the state and federal branches, also in the ASU. I mean, we've seen, we have seen also the examples in the maritime union over in the West. A rank and file team did uh, sweep to power and they still hold the leadership positions 10 years later. The same's occurring in Queensland at the moment with uh, Bob Carnegie and his team campaigning to win the leadership of their union. And you've been listening to Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855 AM. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Well done indeed. And we've just been listening to Marcus Harrington and talking about, um, well, at the end there, talking about the need for rank and file development in unions and earlier talking about the need for across industry action by unions, which in this country is pretty much illegal at the moment and so, and so the law needs to be challenged. Um, and before that I thought was very interesting talking about um, in the build-up to Anzac Day that there are, of course, these other war fronts which are completely ignored. And the first is the war front of the frontier wars. And uh, as we as we know, uh, when... Um, um, What's his name? That person who used to be a minister in the in the in, in the um, Howard government, who's now the director of the of the War Memorial in Canberra, um, he, when he was approached and asked if there could be some representation uh, and some commemoration of the frontier wars at the War Memorial, he, it was just an out and out no. That's not uh, relevant. These, these, this this War Memorial is not for that sort of war. Or well, I don't think they confront. They kept that it's a war. And uh, but the other war front, of course, is the war front of uh, industrial uh, death, industrial injury, which is massive, as we all know, absolutely massive. And where is the commemoration of those people who were killed uh, and injured in in undertaking their duties as workers? That's right. It it almost, I mean, being a person who comes from one of the developing nations, um, I always feel that this, the celebration of war or commemoration of people who died in war. Interesting, because I'm caught between two thoughts. One is, here's the working class kids who go to war and die, which breaks anybody's heart to see these 18, 19, 20-year-olds dying. Um, and all the other aftermaths, you know, if you come back alive that you have to face. And then I think of my people who were attacked in, in our countries, like Malaysia and now Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, wherever. It sort of bothers me a lot. I feel very uncomfortable about the whole situation. You know, which, which, what do I think? And I hate the government for, for putting young people through this enormous um, trauma uh, on both sides. And especially in our country where we've got people like the Vietnam War, millions died. And we don't do a thing about those people we killed. And yet we, we talk about people who went and killed them. I find yes. that, that, that notion... It's a very particular thing, isn't it? Yes. It's, uh, it's, I, it's very disturbing for me. I get caught between mm-hmm. the two. 
Um, not really caught, but I, no, I just... No, it's not. I don't... No, it's not. It's not a contradiction for you, no. I would have thought. It is it's, actually a condemnation of both situations that, mm. that, that whilst we might feel for the, for the Australian soldiers, in our case, since we're in Australia, but for soldiers who die in war, um, then, um, you know, com- celebrating war in the way that it's celebrated. Yes. Making something like Anzac Day, a national day of celebration... At making it the essence of Australianism and yes. all of the things that they talk about is an absolute nonsense. Yes, and 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 so alongside of that is is the is the the horror that we neglect to even mention all, as you say, Lully, all of the hundreds of thousands, millions actually, that have been killed um, by our soldiers going over in most places where they have no business being. Hmm. I also have another experience. I used to work at the Repat Hospital, uh, being a nurse, and looked after people, returned soldiers from First World War, Second World War, the Korean War, Vietnam War, and the traumas they used to go through. Mm. It was vivid, um, especially at night when they're sleeping. They'll, they'll, they'll be talking in their sleep as if they're in the war zone. And they actually be talking to each other across the, the well, war. must have been terrified. Oh, it was horrible. It was horrible. I'm thinking, what? is this government doing to people or the system as such, mm. the capitalist system, which thrives on void. Vandana Shiva says mm. we are, you know, being um, destroyed by this, this notion of war, um, not notion, it's actual war, killing people. Um, and yet, you know, you, you're celebrating it. I, I just, I can't comprehend that notion of a celebration of death. Um, you know, it's interesting that you say that you're at the repatriation hospital because um, at the Labor um, History Conference, Bruce Gates talked about, you know, the building up to Anzac Day and the sort of historical work that's being done in terms of that commemoration. Good work as well as bad work. So good work, exactly what you're saying, remembering how horrendous it was. And um, and he talked about how sparse the the uh, service records are they sort of say you know signed up this day left that day and but the really significant records are the repatriation records which have just been released and they they show you all of the long and tortuous um, struggles with health that returned servicemen have had I think we should have a discussion about this in our the in a fortnight when we come back yes we should have a longer discussion on that yeah Okay, coming up next is um, the week that was, and that's Uncle Kevin going to air. Here we go. A week solidarity, Brecky Teen Listen, we must correct a report from two weeks ago. That report, Zion Supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, now supported a one-state solution. One state for us, no state for them. We quoted him unfairly as it turned out. He denied the report. And to prove it, he said he would never support a Palestinian state, presumably on the grounds that they are a non-people anyway. And Benjamin is committed to establishing more of Zion on the non-land where the non-people live. And the non-people can't expect to live. Uh, You mean on the land where they non-live? Live! And Benjamin might have to change the electoral laws because he had to warn the Zion people to get out and vote because the bloody Arabs were getting out to vote. And they're an enemy of the state and would support a non-people state. So clearly, giving them a vote is a big, big, big mistake. And they must lose the right to vote, seeing they can't use it responsibly, like the people of Gaza who wasted their democratic vote by voting for who they wanted and not who the US of the UN of the US of the world and Zion wanted. So there, we've cleared that up. 
Benjamin doesn't support a one-state solution. He just supports the non-people having no land, which is obviously not the same thing. I got excited Tuesday morning when I turned to the editorial page of the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. Free universities to better serve, the headline leapt out. Wonderful, I thought, the Capitalist Review supporting free education. But can't we be fooled? The free bit, it turned out, meant free the universities to charge whatever they like. The Minister for Private Education, Christopher Payne, in thus great reform, deregulation. The Capitalist Review pointed out the Vice-Chancellors support Payne in those great reform. Their argument reeks logic. See, the government slashes funding, so the only way to compensate is to support the government that slashed the funding, making students pay more and more to make up for it. For so-called intellectuals, it never occurs to the Vice-Chancellors, obviously, that an alternate solution might just be to campaign against the government, join the rest of the academic community, urging the government to meet its responsibilities. Obviously, that's too complicated for them. And the editorial concludes that prices will be controlled because it should be remembered that markets have their own way of dealing with overpricing. Oh, sure, sure, we all appreciate that as we pay our utility bills to the privatised ex-public companies. And clearly, education is a market product like sugar and tobacco and iron ore and coal and cars and, well, you name it. A South True Blue Aussie Socialist Party MP, Lisa Vlahos, real name because no one knows her, is thrilled the Socialist Party is now able to discuss the nuclear industry without the long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden working and iron biases like it's dangerous and the waste creates a, a bit of a problem. It's the answer to climate change, she explained. Uh, but Lisa, what about radiation? It radiates happiness for bat- battling troublewazis trying to do their best for this country like Ronnie Wanker, Hugh Morgvim, Ziggy Switch Nuclear Onski, BHP for bloody huge profits. Would troublewazis battlers like them proceed if they thought there was any threat, even the most remote threat to the environment? Speaking of remote, this is a great opportunity for our Indigenous friends whom we so care about to earn a little bit of pocket money by accepting the little bit of residue. Uh, nuclear waste. Uh, that's your emotive term, and it's win-win. They would have an income for at least 200,000 years. Lisa was supported in her nuclear eulogy by two most unexpected socialist sources, former great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawk himself and former Minister for Just Love Those Resource Giants Martin Cliché. Who would have thought? We all remember, of course, nuclear telling us to uh, go and uh, go home and wait to vote when... Uh, Malcolm, who died yesterday, got elected. But anyway, but it gets a bit confusing. This junior tiny team, True Blue Aussie Minister Josh Frying Den Icebergs, attacked a socialist opponent by describing his views as nuclear. So that's a pejorative, Josh. You're saying his position is really, really nasty and dangerous. That's right. Too right I am. So you think nuclear is nasty and dangerous? Certainly not. Nuclear is the hope of the planet, the big hope of stopping the icebergs from frying. Oh, so you think the socialist opponent is the hope of the side? No, he's bloody nuclear, nasty and dangerous nuclear. See? Told you it was a bit confusing. Well, more than a bit, I'd say. 
On Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses and confusion. And no, listener, I'm not suggesting for one second that Tiny's a bit confused. But sometimes we are a bit confused. Well, I am. But I put that down to the depths of his mind and the shallows of mine. I, I won't include you in the latter, listener, although you're listening to this, which doesn't help your case. But Tiny tells us Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Bill Shorten Ambition is a dangerous anti-Troubler Aussie socialist and also a dangerous fascist, dangerous Nazi in the footsteps of the most inhumane of that lot. We can understand Bill denying vehemently he's he's most definitely not a dangerous Nazi and even more vehemently and more most definitely not a dangerous socialist. Tiny should be called the two-minute man. Every day he tells us he's learned his lessons and will consult and, well, all that, and it takes him about two minutes average to jam his foot down his throat yet again. International visitors who don't understand keep asking why he stumbles out the door every morning hopping on one precarious leg with his other leg down his throat. They think it's some true blue Aussie national trait like obsequiously mouthing yes sir, no sir to the latest US of Big Supremo. Challenged over that comment that the Terra Nullius people couldn't expect the public purse to support their luxurious non-rich and non-famous lifestyle, Tiny told us, People can quibble about my choice of words, but I think sensible true Aussies are able to put those words into context and realise the issue is not important because they know I never mean a word I say anyway. I never mean a word I say anyway. People know I've got no idea what I'm saying. I just open my mouth and the words take over. So do you really mean people can quibble? Remind me, what, what did I say? Tiny also said this year's budget would be boring because last year's budget had fixed up all the problems the socialist government had left behind. But, 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 Tony, none of it got through. Not true. The message it unleashed like a bloody tornado got through, and the people it got through to explained it to me. So don't quibble about my choice of words. It fixed up all the problems the socialist government left behind. Hang on, you're saying the budget that never got through fixed up all the problems you said would take years to fix up? Yes. Uh, So your ministers at Backbeaches and you will now stop blaming the socialists for every problem and every sentence you utter? Certainly not. The economy is in a mess. Evil unions are running this country thanks to the mess we inherited from the irresponsible economic illiterate socialists. But, But you just said there were no economic problems. You're quibbling about my choice of words. That's the trouble with this country, this great country. Well, potentially great if it wasn't for the socialists. Gee, imagine how much better the economy would be, how much better off we'd all be if the budget had got through. But let's get to the really important. In the week that was sport, this Fremantle footballer, part of their coach's game plan to make the game as boring as possible, has tested positive to a, to a prohibited drug, and we now learn that last September he took, quote, a voluntary provisional suspension, which will be taken into account if and when he is sentenced. That was a couple of days after Fremantle played its last match. Almost the entire Essendon team also took a voluntary provisional suspension at the same time. Now, listener. Can we spot the odd problem here? Like, exactly how many games have they missed? Finally, back to the irrelevant. Barnacle. We caught up with the Minister for Hayseed and Sheepshit, Barnacle Joyce to the Rich. Did you know about the correction? No idea. Absolutely no idea. 
So when Hansard was changed to correct a wrong answer you'd given, you knew absolutely nothing about it? Not a thing. Absolutely nothing. So who did change it? It's a bloody mystery. By, by the way, I hope you're not suggesting I would tell a lie. Bit cheeky, but at this point I suggested to Barnacle that maybe he should come up with a slightly better, slightly more credible defence than that. And you sacked your department head this week. Anything to do with the Hansard changes, like maybe he knew the truth, held the smoking gun? No connection, whatever. Can't imagine why anyone would make that link. So you know nothing. Nothing. I know nothing. I even had no idea I'd sacked my departmental secretary until I heard about it on the news. Well, let's face it. We're prepared to believe that Barnacle knows nothing. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kevin. That was terrific. I'm not sure about your um, imitation of the PM and Barnacle, but, you know, they do the job. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay, uh, we'll play a session ID, and then we have Humphrey McQueen. Terrific. So, right, okay, here we go. Here we go. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, I've just, I've just been shown something incredibly unhelpful. He's just written, written down the wrong frequency and shown it to me. I think this is very funny. We have silence, please. This is for radio. Come on. Yeah. Right, here we go. Hi, this is Jay Wilgus Esquire from Public Service Broadcasting, and you are listening to 3CR Community Radio on 855am on your dial. Please subscribe. Good now. And now we're just about to talk to Humphrey McQueen and we're going to continue a discussion that we began a few weeks ago when uh, we were talking, uh, Humphrey was explaining to us why he thought that the terms uh, global financial crisis weren't adequate to describe what was actually going on. Is that right, Humphrey? That was about right. (laughs) Good morning, Humphrey. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, Yeah, I was saying that, you know, you can't, I mean, crisis loses meaning, except for Barnacle, um, if it goes for seven <laughs> years. I go a zillion and a billion and a trillion, poor old Barnacle. Um, and financial, well, it erupted in the financial sector, no doubt about that. But what was erupting was something much more uh, profound in the whole productive capitalist um, um, economy. Uh, so that's what we were trying to talk about last time. Um, and this time I thought, because the question came out of it quite um, naturally, as to why is it that the capitalist system has to expand? Um, because uh, that's the real nature of the origins of all these economic crises that the system uh, has managed to pass through in the last couple of hundred years. Now, I probably should say, I'm not sure this is a very good idea to do on radio, um, but it's a bit past Marxism 101, um, but we'll take it step by step. I think we'll cope, Humphrey, and if you'll cope with us popping in with questions... Oh, that's, that's the important just, part. Yeah. <laughs> right, that's the important part, because I think I said last time, anything you ask, you can be sure that 95% of everybody else want to ask as well. <laughs> yeah, true. That, that's the way to proceed. Now, I think the first thing we do need to get clear is that um, what we're talking about is a very particular kind of of capital, Um, that it's capital that operates within a system. It's not the kind of capital that you might have had in ancient Rome and you had a lot of gold under the bed or owned a lot of slaves or a big farm or something. Uh, Once you move out of that kind of system into capitalism, 
different rules and um, um, policies uh, have to apply. And so that when we talk about, you know, as we do quite rightly, we say people before profits. Uh, that's okay, except that capitalism needs profits for something else. Profits aren't the end of the story. The profits are there, although each individual capitalist might think, oh, goody, I've got a lot more this year than I did last year. What's important for the capitalist system is that a share of that profits um, goes into accumulation to make capital larger for its expansion. That's what has to happen. Now, under slavery, well, you have to go and get new slaves because the ones you've got die. Um, under feudalism, you probably need to go and get more land because you use it up and you don't uh, uh, replenish it properly. But that's a different kind of expansion. Here, but Humphrey, isn't, yes. this, uh, isn't this expansion into accumulation just to make more profits? Yeah, but in order to make the system... Um, itself expand. It is social capital uh, that has to expand. Uh, not just the individual profits of a firm or of a, you know, a, you know, of a corporation. Um, it's the accumulation bit that truly distinguishes the capitalist system um, uh, um, uh, from the others. Because you see, you could make profit and just spend it on yourself. You could buy, you know, paintings, build castles, the kinds of things that indeed previous economic systems engaged in. Uh, but the difference with the capitalist system is, and we have to explain why this is, and this is the bit that we need to get on to, is to why it is that under a capitalist system, these different rules apply as to why um, accumulation has to take place. Uh, okay. And Let's so, get on to that. Yeah, so we certainly need to go. Um, indeed, we do. So, now, here, there are three things that I think drive the accumulation process. Uh, now, we're going to have to talk about them one by one because we can't talk about three things at the same time mm. unless, of course, you're Barnaby Joyce. So, <laughs> the three things are, and I'll just mention them first, there's the competition from other firms. The second thing is that the wage workers, the wage slaves, uh, get organised and demand a bigger share. And the third thing is that capital itself, in order to make a profit, so the accumulation can next take place, what they have to do is to find a market for what they've got their wage slaves to produce for them, which means that, that, that the extra stuff has to be... Um, sold and the profit, uh, well, the surplus value that comes out of the work process comes back to them as profit so it can go to accumulation. Now, those three things happen at the same time, but we're now going to talk about them one by one and go back to the competition. Now, um, competition within the capitalist system is not like the textbook would like us to believe. It, of course, it is pretty much a, you know, increasingly, of course, a uh, oligopoly kind of uh, competition. You don't have 20 or 30 competing firms as you might have done in the middle of the 19th century. From the late, 20, late 19th century onwards, you move towards 
what people sometimes call uh, monopoly capital. I prefer to call it monopolizing capitals because it's a process that continues. It never actually comes to an end and the capitals still are there. There's more than one. So rarely do you ever get any kind of absolute uh, monopoly operating. You've only got um, you know, uh, firms competing uh, against each other, but very, very big firms. Now, as a result of this, each of them has to try to outsell the other one. Now, they have all kinds of ways of trying to do this, but one of them, of course, is to drive to reduce the unit cost of production. Now, if you bring down the unit cost of production, it means that in order to maintain the absolute amount of profit that you get, you have to make more of them, and eventually we'll say you have to sell more of them. So what happens is that out of the competition, the drive to reduce the unit cost so that you can outcompete the other firm means you produce a lot more. This is the great driver within the capitalist system for um, um, growth and expansion. Uh, so that's the first driver. So we see that when we see, you know, big stores, for example, that um, continually dropping their prices against the, the store next door. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, there we're seeing the kind of end process of it because that is at the, um, almost at the consumption end. Mm -hmm. um, but behind that, you'll find that the firms themselves, you know, and you can see it... Um, yeah, I suppose you know one of the ways you can see it is with um, um, uh, airline fares. I mean, if you go back, say, thirty years, the cost of flying around the world um, was, in uh, dollar terms, um, about the same as it is today, and yet yes. there's been enormous inflation. So the real cost to the um, to the person who buys around the world uh, airline ticket has probably come down you know by half or you know or to a third of what it used to be yes um, and the but same the with sa um, at the same time the the number of flights have increased dramatically that's yeah. your point isn't yeah. it yeah yeah um, and so this this drive and you can you know you can think about it with all the I mean you know, this is not a choice that they make they would rather not have this they would rather have um, a monopoly, or sometimes, and we shouldn't get into this in too much detail, we won't get time to do the other bits, they form a cartel amongst themselves mm. in order to stop this. But, of course, because they're capitalists, they cheat on each other. <laughs> so <right>. cartels, <laughs> rarely do cartels last for very long, even when governments aren't there trying to break them up. Mm. So that's the first thing. Okay, the now, second thing? The second thing is you've got these terrible people called workers. Oh, <laughs> those ones that more terrible, wages. They've got this terrible idea <laughs> that they are in some way entitled mm. to something that, that um, for what they produce. And indeed, they have this sense that they might be entitled to a bit more of what they produce than the boss is prepared to give them. Now, the boss has to give them something. There's no doubt about that, because otherwise they wouldn't have the strength to come back to work tomorrow. And indeed, they need the next generation of workers. So there has to be some payment to them. I mean, the boss would love to pay us nothing at all, but they know they can't do that. Um, 
And you, but as the workers got organised from the late 18th century, formed trade unions, all these other terrible things, they put more and more pressure on the employers. Now, um, there's a great simple way of, of putting this. Um, um, Joan Robinson, who was not a Marxist, but a very radical uh, economist, would ask the question, what determines the level of your wages? And her yeah. answer, something we must always remember, the relative strength of the contending classes. <laughs> um, now, what she meant by that, of course, was not just the strength in each individual workplace, but the strength right across the economy, and not just the economic and industrial strength, but the social, cultural, political strength as well. All of those things influence, as we can see in the struggles that are going on at the present moment in Australia and around the world. So the, the relative strength of the contending classes. So when the workers are united and strong, uh, have a political understanding of their position in the capitalist system, when they understand there's no such thing as a fair day's pay, when all of those things are a part of the consciousness of the working class, then they put more pressure on and then they're more likely to be able to get a larger share. Now, the bigger share they take in turn means that the boss tries to stop this by replacing them with machinery. Now, the cost of the machinery, um, of course, uh, like the cost of the consumer goods, over time, they tend to come down as well. But the machine will be add to the productivity of the workers who are not displaced by it. And that means, again, that the capitalist yeah. system, through the application of machinery, is making more units of production and making them per unit uh, cheaper than they were before. So this is the second driver. It's a bit more indirect than it was when we were talking about um, the uh, pressure from uh, other firms because you've got the pressure from the workers wanting wages and conditions, all those other things, um, which drives the employers, the capitalist system, to replace them with machinery. But this in turn adds to the volume of the things that have to be produced. If the amount of profit, the absolute profit, is going to return to the firm or to the corporation. So, so Humphrey, a, a good example, I think, would be if we sort of look at China, uh, where where goods are being produced at incredibly cheap prices, yep. like unbelievably cheap prices, you know, when you look at what we used to pay for a T-shirt, mm -hmm. let's say. Um, but they, what they have there, presumably, is they have um, the latest in technology, in, in machinery, and they have um, cheap a cheap workforce. Well, yes, but of course what we've noticed in the last few years on top of that is that even the Chinese workers have got organised and strong. Yes, yes. good and, for them. <laughs> and, and what this has meant in some places is that they've taken that production out of China and put it into other places mm. where they can get even... Uh, cheaper labour. Cheaper labour again. That's right. That's right. Uh, we'll burn them down if they get to be a nuisance. That's yeah. right. Um, so 
Bangladesh. You've got so now what we've got out of these two forces mm. are, you know, are drivers as to why there has to be more and more units to maintain the absolute amount of profit that is being produced by the workers. And never forget to say that it's the workers who produce this. They add the surplus value, and out of that, okay, and now so we get to your third point, isn't it? Well, this is, we now get to the third point mm. that out of the th- surplus value comes the uh, profit that is going to go to the firm. So it's like three stages. The surplus value is made. You sell some of the things that contain it. Some of that gets back to the original firm as their profit, and then they use some of that to accumulate to get bigger so they can stay in business um, to compete against the other firms. So now we get to the third bit about the pressure that comes to sell this material. And this is what we could, you know, are well aware of. It's called mass marketing. Mm, um, right. They then have all this extra stuff that they have and they have to convince us that we really need it. Um, and there's a very good article by Michael Lebovitz and it's accessible on a, um, uh, a website which is, you know, surplusvalue, one word, dot org, dot au. There's a lot of other useful stuff up there as well. But if you look up there for Michael Lebovitz, he wrote an article many years ago called Capital and the Production of uh, Needs. 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 Yep. And it's, what he says is these are the needs of capital. The thing we've got to remember is that it is the need of capital to expand. Mm. Uh, they say that you need it. Uh, and you know, we've seen an enormous amount of this over the last 50 or 60 years uh, in countries like Australia. Um, and you've got these three things operating simultaneously, and um, that, I think, is what we have to try to understand about why in which the capitalist system um, um, has to expand. It's also, I think, why we've got to um, um, try to understand uh, the impact on the on the um, physical and natural environments. Um, it's not just, as some people would try and tell us, that human beings are nasty and greedy and selfish and just want to indulge ourselves more. We've been taught to do this. Um, some of us will have just seen this f- uh, movie, that um, sugar movie, uh, and what it shows of that, of course, is how we've been taught to take in more and more uh, sugar, more yes. and more sweetness. Yes. Uh, we've been taught to take in more and more salt. We've been taught to take in more and more transgenic fats. Yes. Um, you know, our dietary patterns have changed enormously in the last 60 years. Um, and that's just one personalised uh, example of this, of, of how these things all get together. Uh, and change what we assume are other things that we really need to get through the day. Yeah, and doesn't, does that bring up, you know, the, as well as needing to make each each um, item cheaper, so if, in regards to the competition, then isn't there also this quest to find new items for, to, put, to, put, to bring into 
you know, make it turn oh, into commodities yes. and put yeah. on the market. Yeah. And yeah. so earlier, Humphrey, we were talking with uh, Vandana Shiva, and um, you know, she was so she was talking about Monsanto and the commercialization mm. of seed, and that that struck me because I knew we were going to be talking to you now mm. as being a, a very good example of a new something new that's being brought into commodification. Well, indeed, um, and there's there's almost yeah. Nothing that in a country like Australia uh, hasn't been subjected to that um, over the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, now, people go you know, become um, very critical about it. Um, and it's important, though, I think, to get the kind of understanding I've been aiming uh, at today. And there's one more important point, I think, that um, uh, I do need to add to this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it's a kind of extrapolation of where we've been already. Um, and it's important to remember that in the capitalist system, what is important for capital is not the volume of the goods that it is uh, producing. Um, I mean, that's what we see on the surface, you know, that there's, you know, 100 cars this year and 200 cars the year after. For the capitalist system, it's the amount of value added by the worker that's important. So that if they can get that amount of value added in the same number of cars or food or anything else, then that will serve their purpose. On that point, Humphrey, the less workers do the work and more mechanised it becomes, it means there's a less part of it that is extractable as surplus value. Yeah. That is, that is really the key point, uh, because it is that that drives them to have more units uh, of production, because each unit contains less human capacity, which is you know, what we're really talking about when we're talking about the value that is added, our capacity to add value to the raw materials or the semi-finished uh, products that come to the factory. Um, it is that extra that they have to try to extract. Um, and it is that driver that makes them produce more and um, larger quantities yes. over and over again. It isn't just the items themselves. So that um, while we can say that um, if the capitalist system has to expand in order to be healthy in its own terms, which is unhealthy for everybody else, um, if it has to do that at about the rate of 3% every year, which seems to be, over the historic period, what it needs to do, which is, of course, what it hasn't been doing for the last seven or eight years, that would mean that, you know, pretty roughly, it would have to get twice as big every 30 or 35 years. <laughs> so if it's 100 today... In 33 years' time, it's 200. In, you know, then, if it's 200, then, in order to grow again by, by 3% a year, it doesn't go from 200 to 300, it goes from 2 to 4. Mm. And over a century, it goes from 4 to 8. Yeah. Now, that won't happen because of what we've been saying about the innovations that it will introduce into the system. New technologies will come. Uh, new ways of using... Uh, raw materials, uh, kinds of inventions will come about. I mean, if the system is able to go on for another 100 years, you know, that's, if we look back over the past 100 years, um, 
So that's what's happened. But even if in 100 years it doesn't go from 1 to 800, even if it only goes, say, from 1 to 300, think of the amount of raw materials and goods that are going to have to be found on the planet somewhere. Hmm. Um, Hence the destruction put, of the planet. Yeah, and, yeah, which is why I think when, we, when environmentalists talk about this, that unless they understand Marx's analysis of why capital has to expand, then they're only going to be dealing with the superficial aspects of it. Yes, and then they're going to be calling for reforms rather than revolution. Well, and even the reforms they'll call for aren't really going to go to the heart of the matter. And they're going to be calling for reforms that are going to very often, as we now say, say, this is an individual problem. Stop being so greedy. Mm. Um, you know, there's a little bit of this, not too much, even in the sugar movie, that it's kind of saying, well, yes, it doesn't really help if you go on a diet personally, but there's still this sense running through it that uh, it isn't a problem that you've got to solve in the way in which the entire food industry is there, uh, and which, you know, the, you know a, a really radical reform would be to say, okay, let's stop all advertising for all these different kinds of foods. Oh, that would or, be wonderful. Or, or I have a particular version of this in which I say there should be a has chem sign on cocoa pops. <laughs> Well, Love that. Absolutely. You know, uh. and, I mean, they're the kinds of things that, you know, that, that, cause they're, they're reforms, of course, but they bring a, drive attention home to the core problem. And they're the kinds of reforms that, because, I mean, people have difficulty in comprehending the whole system uh, over hundreds of years. So if you can find examples that relate to their uh, daily lives and you can say, look, make this change, and that reveals to you what's going wrong with the whole system. Mm. Uh, they are the kinds of things we have to try to do. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, now, the transitional other thing, demands, I would have thought. Sorry, there? Transitional. Well, yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the other things that, you know, that I should uh, put in here, people will say, well, of course, um, the real change is going to come, not in physical goods, but in a knowledge economy. Mm. That value is going to be added in the... Uh, knowledge economy. Well, to some extent, that is mm. that's certainly the case. But if you look at the the implements of the knowledge economy, the kind of things that people hold in their hands as mobile phones or iPods or things, what do we see? The constant replacement. Every six months, there's a new version of yes. it. Yes, so you've got to right. get rid of this one, which yeah. is perfectly good, yeah. still yes. functioning. You've got to throw it out. And how do they pay for the knowledge economy? All the pop-ups, advertising, all the other stuff that you have to buy. Yes. Mm. It appears to come to you for free, but it's actually, and that, you know, that it isn't using up a lot of the world's materials, but it's being used to promote the sale of all those other materials. So that we are yet to see, I think. Well, and actually to undertake the sale in many cases, because increasingly, you know, commerce well, is done and trading is done through the internet. Through, yeah, and, you know, they're on your, you, know you see right. something, you know, I mean, you get people there um, uh, reading um, um, a book 
uh, online mm. and there's some footnote or reference to a book and you can buy that book. So yes. they press the button for that. That's right. Well, that's right. And, and it is. I mean, I, I, I'm guilty of this and I, and I understand that seduction of it is amazing, you know, that you... Sometimes I'm listening to the radio and I hear someone advertising, you know, well, not advertising, but promoting a book, you know, an author being interviewed, talking about a book. And before I know where I am, I've pressed the button and I've got the book on my iPad. Yeah, and one of the things we find, I don't want to say this is true in your case, one of the things they know, of course, because they can track all of this, is that most of those books are never even opened. Mm. Sorry to interrupt here, you guys, but we need to wind up. I did, indeed. And <laughs> um, we'll take it up again. Yes. Um, and and I want to discuss the point you made um, in, in your um, notes, Humphreys. The ideology is an effect, yeah, not the that cause. That was my very next point. Okay, <laughs> that's that where we should go next. Yeah, I think that's great. We'll talk we about should, that. It'd be lovely to go there next. All, All right. right. Okay, we'll okay, organise that food. Thank you so Thank you much. very bye. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Announcements. I'll do two and you do the Always two Always bring you the latest union news. They're coming you know after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. Down. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web. 3cr.org.au couple of quick announcements before we uh, part company. Uh, once on the 25th of March at 6.30, uh, Maziboko Jara, a leading member of the Democratic Left Front and a former leader of the South African Communist Party, will be speaking about the new left in South Africa at the Resistance Centre Level 5, Swanson Street in the city. And the other one is a March uh, 28th event, uh, a rally, Stop Terrorism in Australia by Bringing Troops Home from Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan at 1pm in Federation Square. And two more from you, Lynn. Uh, yes, there's a uh, protest rally at 2pm at the State Library of Victoria on the 25th of March, and that's a Students' National Day of Action. And um, also there's a call for anyone interested in supporting Kurdish people's struggle uh, to sign a petition in lifting the ban on the PKK. You can uh, go to our website, www.lifttheBanOnThePKK, all one word, .org. That's www.lifttheBanOnThePKK.org. And uh, there you'll be able to sign a petition to lift the ban on the PKK. And uh, in conclusion, I would like to say we also have a Facebook page yes. called Solidarity Breakfast and it would be so fabulous for us to get some feedback about our program so that we know how to improve it and make you love it all the more. And we need and to get an email actually, email address so they can email um, opinions to us. Okay, on that note, we'll say goodbye okay. and we'll Bye for now. see you in two weeks.